Good morning again, Redeemer. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts. You can just get to Acts 23. Uh, we'll read the one verse above that at the end of chapter 29, and we'll read the entirety of uh, this chapter. If you give you five seconds to find it or pull it up on your phone and would ask that you would follow along with me either in your Bibles or on the screen, there is great power in reading this word of God, which is alive and is inspired and inerrant. We'll start in Acts 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. And it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said these things, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from among them by force, and bring him into their barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him, and Jesus said to him, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and the elders, and they said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. And as he has something to say to you, the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, he asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But please do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. 
And now they are ready, waiting on your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to Felix the governor. Claudius Lysias, who is excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that Paul was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the words of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Uh, dear Jesus, thank you uh, that you tell us what the Bible is about. All of law, all of the law, all of the writings of Moses, all of the prophets, that they are uh, about you. And so, Father, we would do well to ask this question of this passage. Where is Jesus here? And Lord, we confess we may not be sent before governors or put on ships or there may not be a conspiracy out against us to uh, take our lives. And yet uh, it has been appointed for God's people to suffer, to go the way of the Christ. And so the good news for Paul is the good news for here, uh, for us this morning. And we pray that it would be faithfully proclaimed to your people. Father, my heart uh, breaks for those who do not know the peace and the presence and the pardon and the protection that is ours in Jesus. And so might today be a day, Lord, where as we bask in what is ours in Jesus, that those outside of him would realize that this is not yet theirs. And may today be a day where you replace their blindness with sight. Do this, we pray, uh, for your glory, Jesus. Amen. This is now the second defense that Paul will make of his faith in Jesus, of the five that he'll make before he is sent to Rome. And I want to, it, it might appear that the focus of this passage is on Paul's defense of Jesus, right? That's what you see in our heading, Paul before the council. But I will submit that this is not about Paul's defense of Jesus. I will submit to you that this passage is about Jesus' defense of Paul. And here's why. 
If you take chapter Acts 22 and, and cut it and put it in any word processor and do a word count, here's what you're going to discover. Acts 22 last week, there are 874 words. Paul's words occupy 560. In other words, the focus of Acts 22 is 65% of Paul's words. So you might say that Acts 22, it really is about Paul's defense of Jesus. But if you cut Acts 23 and put it in a word processor and do a word count, it's 952 words. Paul only occupies 114 of them. That's 12% of the chapter are words from Paul's mouth. What about the other 88%? It's not about Paul's defense of Jesus. This passage is about how Jesus defends Paul. Paul is an endangered witness, but like all state, he's in the good hands of King Jesus. I think Paul is being reminded by Jesus, you will defend me, but don't forget that I'm defending you. You will testify of me and you will suffer, but don't you forget that I'm with you in the suffering. And you will go before kings and there is nothing they can do to you apart from my will. Not a hair on your head will be harmed until I say so. In beautiful irony, Paul tells us right there in verse 6 that he is on trial with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And if you look down in verse 11, it is no coincidence that of all places, this is where the resurrected Jesus shows up. Paul's talking about the resurrection and that night in the barracks, Jesus shows up. You do have hope and I am alive, just like you say, Paul. I think this passage is to remind us of the same truth, Redeemer. We must suffer. We must endure trials and troubles. We will defend his name. And Jesus says, I'm defending you. I'm with you. Nothing will happen to you apart from me. You're in good hands because you're in my hands. And no one is stronger than anything you will endure. I think Jesus blesses Paul with his presence. I think Jesus defends Paul with his eternal priesthood. I think Jesus draws near to Paul with his kingly protection. And these are yours and mine right now. So let's look at the text. The first thing, Jesus defends us. By drawing near to us with his presence in times of trouble. Paul is in trouble, right? That he was almost beaten last week. And it was realized that he was a Roman citizen who had been unjustly tried. And so the tribune, this military commander, he is confused. On the one hand, he sees these Jews who want to kill him. He sees the high priests and the elders and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they want to harm him. And on the other hand, he hears Paul and he's like, man, I've done nothing. And so the tribune is confused. And so here's what he does. He takes Paul out of the crowd last week and he says, 
maybe if I give this guy a smaller, more intimate setting with just the religious leaders and himself and me, maybe we can get the truth out. But that's not what happens here, right? That by the time this passage is over, Paul has been punched in the mouth, that 40 hit men want to take his life, and that the Sadducees and the Pharisees are pulling on him like a rag doll. And it's in the middle of that that you get verse 11. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and the Lord said to him, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also do in Rome. This is not just a promise that Paul's going to make it safely to Rome. That's there. But did you catch the first phrase? Jesus stood by him. Jesus has done this in earlier chapters of Acts when his servants have been in prison. He deployed an earthquake or he sent an angel. Jesus is not using secondary means here. He himself shows up in the barracks. And this sounds kind of Old Testamentish, right? It's why Zach read from Daniel chapter 3 when Nebuchadnezzar threw those three men inside the fiery furnace and Nebuchadnezzar saw the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when he heated it up, he looked and said, behold, how, how is there a fourth man in there? I thought we put three in. And he says, I see another one, an extra person who looks like the sons of gods. It's what Daniel, what happens in Daniel chapter 6 when King Darius throws Daniel into the lion's den and he can't sleep that night because he's been tricked. He gets up the next morning. Oh, Daniel, please tell me you're alive. It is well, O king. My Lord sent an angel to shut the mouths of angels, of the lions. It's what you see with Joseph when he's in prison in Genesis, that he goes from being Pharaoh's right man to being at the bottom, and then he finds favor in the bottom because because the Lord is with him. There is a pattern in the Old Testament that when God's people find themselves in the pits, in the valleys, that they are not alone, that God gets in there with them. And that's a pattern because you'll see it later in Paul's life. In a few chapters, when Paul is shipwrecked and the sailors are about to lose their mind, Paul says, take courage. The angel of the Lord appeared to me last night. And he said, we're going to be all right, right? In 2 Timothy, Paul says, at my first defense, no one came to stand with me. Everyone deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and the Lord strengthened me. Do you see what's happening? We talk about our habits, right? Our holy habits, habits of prayer, habits of giving, Habits of reading God's word, habits of repenting, habits of confessing, habits of forgiving. But have you ever thought about what are Jesus's habits? What does he do repeatedly? And here is what we see in this passage. Jesus has a habit of drawing near to his people in times of trouble. You go ask Daniel. You go ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You go ask Joseph. You go ask Paul. You go ask David. When they're in the pits, 
their God is in there with them. And that's important because I don't know about you, but, but I have to retune my heart to this. Because as a pastor, you hear the Great Commission, the last thing Jesus says, make disciples verb, right? Go, that's how you do it, by going. You do it by teaching. You do it by baptizing. That's how we make disciples. And here's the thing, that's where my heart usually stops. But that's not the final words of the Great Commission. The final words of the Great Commission is, behold, and I am with you even until the end of the ages. You catch that? That is ministry of presence. That's a promise to Jesus that as we go, as we encounter hardship, as we make disciples, we never go anywhere on God's green earth alone. He goes with his people. So last week, or maybe two weeks ago, we were watching a special on, it might have been the last Monday Night Football, I can't remember, but Marshawn Lynch, they were doing something on him. And I, and I didn't know that the, the Seattle Seahawks, they hold the Guinness Book of World Records for the loudest outdoor sporting event. Almost 140 decibels on a Monday night football when Marshawn Lynch ran a, a, a touchdown all the way back and, and bowling guys over and almost stumbling. And, and it, it was so loud that it registered as a mini earthquake. When you play the Seattle Seahawks, it's been it's 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 popular for them to refer to their extra player as the 12th man. You see, in football, you can only put 11 on a field. So how how do they have this other person on the field and they're not penalized? It's the crowd. And when it's fourth quarter and you're down and out, and you're the home team, and you can't get a playoff, you can't catch a break, playing at home, you realize you're not alone. And the crowd starts to roar and stomp and shout and hold up signs. And the opposing team can't get a playoff because it's too loud. They get a delay a game. Their linemen can't hear the snap count. And they get a false start. And all of a sudden, this team that's crushing you has to punt. And then when you get the ball back, the crowd is behind you. And they are silent when you call hike. And they cheer when you make a play. And all of a sudden, if you're watching the game, you can see it. You can see the momentum of having an extra person on your team who is with you when you're down and out. And I'm here to tell you that that is a picture of King Jesus. That when it's fourth quarter and it's five minutes ago and you are losing and you are about to lose, what if your hearts and were trained to listen to him? He is there. He has a habit when you're down and out of showing up and he is not far from you. And sometimes he mediates his presence through people, a good friend who will let you cry on their shoulders, who will not judge, but will listen and freely offer you the goodness of Jesus. And sometimes 
It's God's word that as you are reading and spending time in the word, a passage or a verse strikes a chord in your heart and you realize Jesus is right here. And sometimes you're singing in worship and it's a song that you play on repeat after repeat after repeat and Jesus is there. And sometimes Jesus doesn't need this. You have Holy Spirit inside of you and sometimes Jesus will just bear witness in your soul in a way that you can't put to words that you are not alone. What if we trained our hearts and our ears to look for him because what he says about him is that when my people who are known by my name find themselves there if they would just look around I'm in there with them I think Jesus is defending Paul with his presence the next thing we look at is Jesus defends Paul with his priestly work look I think Paul thinks that when he begins to testify in chapter 23, I actually think he thinks that he's about to get 65% of the conversation. And that doesn't happen. Look, look at how it starts. Verse 1 of chapter 23, and Paul, looking intently at the council, he said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Paul is shut down. He might have bit his lip. That that the language here is he ordered those, not one person. Paul could have had knots on his head at this point. But he doesn't get to bear witness. Now, why? why? Why is he struck? Because he says that he has a good conscience before God, that Paul is always talking about the conscience, that in Romans 2, he says, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. In the next chapter, verse 16, he's going to say that I take pains to have a clear conscience. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about us causing brothers to sin by sins of conscience, right? So what does he mean by saying, I have a clear conscience? I don't fully know. Some commentators ignore it. Some are divided, right? N.T. Wright says this does not mean that Paul is sinless. It does mean that whenever he did anything wrong, he immediately did what was necessary to put it right. This is what the sacrificial system was designed to deal with. John Calvin says Paul means to communicate that he is not ignorant or in contempt of God or the law or the Jewish religion. He wants his hearers to know that he is not a wicked man so that they will further listen to him. Matthew Henry says he was a man inclined towards religion all his life. It's all over the place, right? But what is he? mean by having a clear conscience? I think the answer is hidden, not hidden, but I think it's lodged in how the high priest responds. You see, it's the high priest Ananias who, upon hearing Paul say his conscience is good and perfectly clear before God, that's when he has him struck in the mouth. You see, to Ananias, this sounds blasphemous. 
I told you he was a heretic. Whose conscience is clear before a righteous and holy God? Does he not know of sins of omission and sins of commission? Does he not know what David prayed? That Lord, who can, who can rightly judge themselves? Who can discern his own errors? Lord, search me, even declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Does this fool not know that he is not clean before a righteous God? See, I think that's what's going on. I think Ananias is hearing this and it sounds blasphemous. Unless Paul knows the freedom that a high priest greater than Ananias gives him. You see, to those not in Jesus, this clear conscience that Paul talks about, it sounds blasphemous. But if your high priest is Jesus... This is blessing. And this is the comparison that happens in Hebrews 9. Now, now listen to me, because the author of Hebrews is going to say that there are two economies. You have this old system, which was good, and it was appointed by God, but it was supposed to be temporary. It was supposed to point to someone, something greater. And so the author of Hebrews is putting these two things up and against one another. He says, hey, in the old economy, you brought the blood of goats and animals. In the old economy, you came before a priest and you came before a high priest and that high priest went in once a year in the Holy of Holies to make intercession for his sins and for the sins of the people. And he did this repeatedly year after year after year after year. And what the author of Hebrews says, but someone greater has come, a high priest who did not offer the blood of goats and bulls, but this guy, this God man, he offered himself. And you don't have to keep offering sacrifices year after year after year after year. He did something once and for all on Calvary that blots out all iniquity. And then the fruit of that in Hebrews 9, it spills over into Hebrews 10. Because of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience. You catch what Hebrews is saying? You see, I get it. That's why Ananias thinks Paul is committing blasphemy. Because he does not see Paul's high priest. And if you don't see the work of the greater high priest, you have none of the benefits of his work. Let's test this, right? Test, let's test this theory with a case study. How does Paul react when he is hit in the mouth? Paul says, God's going to strike you down, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you would order me to be struck? And then those who stood by Paul said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, oops, my bad. <laughs> you got me. I didn't know he was a high priest. Will you forgive me? 
Because the law, Exodus, he quotes Exodus. He says, y'all are right and I'm wrong. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of God's people. Whoa. Now, this is the same Paul who writes what I'm about to read to you from 1 Corinthians. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure it. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the refuse of the world, the scum of all things, right? But that ain't what Paul did right there. Bro, you got reviled and you reviled back. You got cursed and you got cursed back. One commentator, Longenecker, says Paul responds is out of character of the follower of Jesus. If you track Jesus's posture when Jesus was in the same predicament, Jesus did not reply, right? Jesus did bless when he was persecuted. Paul momentarily lost his composure. We must not excuse this sudden burst of anger. But guess how Paul finishes in 2 Timothy? You know what he says about himself there? That's at the end of his life. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. He's like, whoa, bro. We got you on record admitting that you just did something wrong. That ought to haunt you. You're like the ones who spoke out against Moses. You did the very thing you teach us not to do. You did not take your own medicine, Paul. What's up with you? How is your conscience clear? If you are as holy as you say you are, how can this not torment you? This one thing we see here, let alone everything else, how can he at the end of his life say, my conscience is just clear? You know why? Because Paul would say, I don't care what you think. And I don't even care what I think about me. All that matters is how God sees me. And God sees me in Jesus. And therefore, my conscience is clear. And I am free to own my sin and name it according to God's word. But I am not judged by it. Doesn't that sound blasphemous if you're an older brother? But if you're a younger brother who realizes that God's grace is scandalous and it's lavish and the finished work of Jesus is full and lacking no good thing, then we actually can, when our troubles get the best of us, when we lash out like we ought not to, when we're in the crucible of life and we don't pass the test, we can actually come through it with a clear and clean conscience. Because that is what the blood of Jesus does. It washes you when you fail. This is why I love John Newton's hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. And he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed you in his blood. You may draw nigh to God. 
That is why Paul's conscience is clear. Because another high priest stands in his place. One who pours out his life, his blood, to make us clean. And you are clean. Last thing that is Paul's and also ours is Jesus's kingly protection in times of trouble. So in 1970, the federal government, United States government, passed what is known as the Organized Crime Control Act. And that's been renamed to the Federal uh, Witness Protection Program. You've probably seen mob movies where there's organized crime and this witness who's a key witness to the facts is endangered because they don't want this person to testify. Well, as of 1970, now the government can intervene and the government can put this witness who is in danger of not surviving trial into their protection program. We believe that 20,000 people in our country are currently in this program. And here's what they do. They give you new names. They'll give you a new social security card. You can get detailed agents to stand guard. You can be relocated to another city, all in the name of protection. When these folk down here want to knock you off and act unjustly, some with more power and more force can intervene and protect the vulnerable. That's what's happening in our passage. That Paul is a witness. He's a witness of Jesus. And these religious folk don't want him to make it to trial. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus says, Paul, you're in my protection plan. And I'm going to work through providence. And I'm going to even work through pagans and their laws to make sure that you're safe and you go where I want you to go. That's the reason our reflection quote comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism, because Jesus executes this office of king by restraining and overcoming our enemies and by powerfully ordering all things for his glory. And that's what you see happening in this chapter. Jesus, King Jesus, is showing Paul that I got you. Providence and the ordering and the overcoming, I'm going to do it. Now, what's happening? Why? What, what's happening around it? Look in verse 12. When, the, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And then they went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, hey, give us notice and go do this. And so this isn't just 40 men. This is probably the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the elders and the 40 men who were the hit men. This is probably 100 plus people in cahoots to bring Paul down to the ground. And what does Jesus do? It's all right. I got this. If Paul were by himself, yeah, they would win. But he's not. Have y'all ever heard of Paul's sister? 
Well, her little boy overheard a conversation. You know, the next time we hear about Paul's sister in the Bible, never. <laughs> so what, what, what's the chances that right here in Acts 23, we discover Paul has a sister and her sister has a son. And the language here, and I think this is endearing language. This isn't a grown man like Peter in the heat of it. This is like a boy. The language here is that this is probably a boy who's just come out of puberty. He's not married, right? So, and notice the posture when he comes to the tribune. The tribune stoops down and grabs his hand and talks to the young man, right? Listen to what's going on, that this this plan is overheard by this boy who happens to be Paul's little nephew, who happens to have enough courage, courage that Peter didn't have, to actually go in the barracks and tell Paul, and then he tells Paul, and Paul reaches out to his centurion and says, hey, send send my nephew over here to uh, the, 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 the tribune, and then tell him, and the tribune, who would have been this military towering figure, who probably would not have let little kids just kind of come around in that culture, he stoops and says, young man, come on in. Tell me what you heard. And the tribune says, okay, your uncle's going to be safe. I got him. And then he writes a letter to Felix, the governor. And before he writes the letter, look, look at the show of force in verse 23. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen in the middle of the night, even get mounts for Paul. Do you hear? This is excessive force. And the question is, who's behind this? This is King Jesus, who told us that he has legions of angels, who told us his kingdom was not of this world. This is one of the moments where Jesus says, let me just flex on y'all for a minute. Let me just show you right now who I can bring to my disposal to protect my witness. And guess what? I don't even have to be there in the midst. I hold the hearts of kings and leaders in my hands and I can soften his heart to make him give me these many people and these many horses and these many trained soldiers to get my guy out of their hands. That's Jesus doing this. And did you notice where Paul went? He went to a city called Antipatris down there in verse 31. That's a city that Herod built in honor of his father. The name of the city is for my father. The irony that King Jesus will send his servant to a city that's for my father. And his father will protect Paul. That you'll hear this guy, this tribune named Claudius, talk about, I came upon him, I heard this, I charged this, I charged this. But you and I know with eyes of faith that he is not the only one working. This is King Jesus working behind and through and under and over and in this pagan man. Jesus does not need Christians or righteous people to carry out his righteous actions. And when you see the religious in this passage behaving unjustly, it is King Jesus who overrides their behavior with righteous laws carried out through the hands of unrighteous people. That is sovereignty. And that is precisely what Jesus does. And did you notice how the passage ends? Look at verse 35. Felix is like, all right, I'm going to hear him out. 
And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. What? That's the most fortified place in that region. There's a saying in some hip-hop music, we started from the bottom, now we're here. Or I pulled myself up out of the mud and now I'm here. This is Paul being taken out of the mud, out of the miry clay, out of the barracks where they're about to tear him up. And guess where he ends up? In a castle. And guess who got him there? He didn't do that. Jesus did that. This is evidence that King Jesus will defend his people with his kingly power. And Paul will eventually die. I'll give you that. But not a nanosecond before Jesus says it's time. And when Paul does die, he will wake up and he will truly be in his father's city. He will be in the most guarded place known to man where nothing defiled, nothing dark, nothing evil, nothing that torments us in this life can cross the threshold of the city of God. And that is yours and mine. This is a picture where Paul is in life and where he ends up in this chapter he ends up safe. And that is Jesus' promise to you. Your troubles will not overtake you. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. He who started a good work will complete it, and he will bring you home to the praise of his name. You are in good hands with King Jesus. And so when you read Psalm 121, your help comes from the Lord. He will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will keep your going out and your coming in now and forevermore. He is faithful. He will do it. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for your son. Thank you for his ministry and his love and the way that Father, Son, and Spirit cooperate and work together to make yourself known to your people in times of trouble. Thank you for the eternal priesthood of Jesus, which ever washes your people. Thank you, Jesus, for the safety and security that we have in you because you are a good king, a king worthy to be praised. Father, these are gifts for your people, and I pray that your people will leave here uh, so encouraged by your goodness to us. And Father, we pray for those who don't know you, that they are not aware of your presence, that their consciences, if they're honest, it torments them. You have written the law on our hearts, and yes, our consciences can be, they can be seared, and yes, we can call wrong, right, and right, wrong, but you are the God of redemption, and you can speak into seared consciences, convict us of sin, and draw us to the great high priest. Will you do that for those who don't know you? And would we all be mindful of the security that we have 
that nothing separates us from you. You work in time and space and history through all means to protect us and to bring us home. And we rest in that. We love you. Amen.